0: To mark the launch of the new Spectator app, we're offering our podcast listeners the chance to try a three month digital subscription absolutely free. To subscribe in our flash sale, go to spectatorco.uk forward slash app offer today. Hurry though, this offer ends Sunday. Hello and welcome to Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. And this week, I'm very pleased indeed to be joined by Professor Richard Dawkins, whose new book is called Books Do Furnish a Life, Reading and Writing Science. And it's a collection of his essays, some interviews, reviews, sort of miscellaneous pieces. But it feels like it has a shape, Richard. I'm interested in asking you about the shape of this book. You've, you've sort of put it in five chunks. What was the thought behind that?
1: Well, I have to pay tribute to Gillian Summerscales, who actually did the editing of it she did the, the, the editing into into chunks. I mean, I'm, I'm all for it. I approve of what she's done, but it was her thinking, not mine, and I shouldn't claim credit for it. As you said, it the book is somewhat miscellaneous, but it is all about books. Unlike the, my previous collection, which was called Science in the Soul, which was past essays uh, of a more general nature, this one is pretty much concerned about books, forwards, reviews, afterwards, that kind of thing. Plus, as you said, these additional interviews, conversations with people.
0: Obviously, you know, reading and writing science, i to start by talking about writing science. What is it, do you think, that makes science writing, particularly science writing, addressed to a general audience of the sort that you've spent a lot of time on? What is it that makes it work? And what are the you know, what are you aiming to achieve and what are the sort of limitations of the form? What are the difficulties you face?
1: I think science is inherently fascinating. And so um, we need to be clear, we need to sell science as being something wonderful uh, and something really terrific, that something marvellous, that people should not go to their grave without um, understanding something about the world in which they live from a scientific point of view. It is such a privilege to be, well, a privilege to be living, actually, in the current time when science has shown so much. Um, We're living after the age of the 19th century, after the 20th century. Um, There's such a lot that is known, such a lot that is still to be known, of course, and that's also important because one of the excitements of science is there's such a lot to work on. But I think writing science should be enthralling, exciting, stimulating, exhilarating, because that's what science is.
0: And in terms of sort of the way you explain things, how cautious are you of metaphor and analogy? Because there's, you know, to some extent, they can often seem like a sort of necessary falsification.
1: I think it's important that metaphors and analogies should help. Should do some work. to actually help to understand, if they are no easier to understand than the original that they're trying to analogize, then obviously that's not very productive. I use them a fair bit. Uh, I use metaphors quite a bit. Many of my book titles, I suppose, you could. I like that. I like them to be poetic, if possible, as well. I suppose there are dangers of being too carried away with metaphors. I think it's not in this book, but in some of my other books. I've criticized Scientists who have got carried away, for example, I don't know whether you're familiar with the idea of the Cambrian explosion. Some people have got rather carried away with the idea that, in the Cambrian, the animal phyla were born and they went into a kind of wild dance, a wild exuberant dance of extravagant experimentation. That's the kind of thing. I don't know whether you know the book I'm talking about, but but I I won't mention names. But it's um pernicious, over poetic, over uh, it's, it's, bad, it's bad poetry. It's bad metaphor. There, there was nothing special about the Cambrian. Evolution in the Cambrian was just like evolution now. It was just the animals were different. So you can go too far, and you're right about that.
0: Particularly, I mean, when it goes to very complex issues. I've been being kind of slightly traumatised by Roger Penrose's The Road to Reality, which said, I, I'm sure truthfully, look, if you're going to understand these concepts you need to understand the maths behind them. Yeah. They can't be metaphorized, And it had little sort of smiley faces according to how hard the maths was. You know, It was sort of a frown for undergraduate <laughs> yeah. level yeah. and a kind of yeah. deep frown yeah. for postgraduate level. And I couldn't get beyond the basic smiley face. I mean, are there some concepts that are essentially not explicable to a general audience? Do you think? I, I suspect that is
1: true of modern them? physics, uh, uh, Roger Penrose's own subject, I don't think it's true of biology. I mean, there are difficult things in biology, but they're often a matter of penetrating the language. A subject like immunology, for example, which is in the news at the moment because of COVID. If you try to read the immunology literature, I find it hard because you have to learn so many words. There's sort of thickets of impenetrable language, which is a different problem from the problem of physics, where the problem of physics is very much... That it is deeply, deeply mysterious. And uh, I feel, as an evolutionist, that I can explain that by saying that the human brain evolved to understand things that were going on in Africa in the Pleistocene, and uh, how about you know how to chase prey and how to avoid being eaten by predators and how, where to find a good waterhole and things like that. The astonishing thing is that the brain that was selected to do that in the Pleistocene of Africa, can cope with the sorts of things Roger Penrose does cope with. I mean, modern physics, it's really an astonishing feat of the human brain that it can do it. But not all human brains can do it. Actually, rather few human brains can do it. And it's a wonder that any of them can.
0: Now, the book is dedicated to Peter Medawar, who emerges from your very generous introduction as a kind of hero of how to communicate science. Can you tell me what what was special about his work and the other...
1: Yes, you've admired I didn't know soccer. him well. I, I met him about three times, three or four times, I suppose. I had dinner with him in his house on one occasion. I think his style of writing is wonderful. It's got a kind of arrogance to it, but he was, he was entitled to be arrogant because he was such a, a distinguished scientist and such a polymath as well. I mean, so enormously well read in philosophy, in history, as well as in science, he, I don't know whether you notice any of the quotes. I won't quote them again now, but 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 they're so witty in the proper sense of being witty. I mean, he didn't tell jokes like a stand-up comedian. He he used language in a in a witty way, and I think, you know, if only I could do that, I would I would I would love to be able to do to do what what he did. Of course he was a bit arrogant. I mean, he sort of said things like, it's impossible to argue with anybody so foolish as as not to agree that the complex of molecular biological discoveries initiated by Watson and Crick were were the most important scientific discoveries of the 20th century. Plenty of people could argue with that. I mean, plenty of physicists would argue that quantum theory and relativity and things is up there. But he does it with such panache uh, that you kind of forgive him the arrogance. Or when he said, um, it so happened that in Cambridge at the ti- a time when Watson was there, the School of English was inhabited by a-, a couple of dozen extremely brilliant people right up in the Watson class. But then he then he added, but Watson had one towering advantage over all of them. He had something important to be clever about. Now that again is is sort of going too far by, by many people's standards and yet you can't help kind of hugging yourself with laughter and and um... <laughs> I
0: can say so I mean that that does raise that the, the old two cultures chestnut I mean over the many years since Snow wrote about the two cultures and you you touch on it I don't think you mention it but you talk about the yes. you know arts graduates who have you know, no particular shame or even a sneaking pride in admitting that they can't solve a differential equation. Do you think that things have changed since then and changed for the better, or do you think the divide's still deep?
1: There was a time when, when I wrote, for example, Unweaving the Rainbow, where I really went into that kind of thing, and, and I think I quoted Snow then. I quoted Bernard Levin and various other people who really did seem to take a pride in not understanding science and really they didn't like, didn't want to understand science and kind of made a joke about how clever they were not to understand science. And I remember resenting that at the time. I think it's probably got a bit better since then. I I haven't come across anything quite as bad as the Bernard Levin tendency. That was in the 1990s. I haven't come across anything quite as bad as that since. I think it may be getting a bit better.
0: We've seen a lot of popular science writing. I mean, there's a huge appetite for it, isn't there?
1: There is, yes. I'm very encouraged by that. I've noticed it. I'm sure you go to literary festivals, places like Hay-on-Wye and things like that. And I've found that people like me, I don't say me in particular, but people like me, people like Steve Jones and others, command huge audiences and of very enthusiastic people who ask interesting questions at the end. And so I find those literary festivals where these are the literary types. I mean, they're bookish people going to these places, going to The festivals like Hay and Cheltenham and Stratford and things. And I think it's a very encouraging sign that science is is up there, along with novels and poetry, as something that literary people take seriously.
0: And when you're presenting science and the scientific method, you talk in one of the essays early on here about saying kind of constitutionally and as a class, scientists are, are sort of almost more honest than members of other professions, because you say the way that they do their work is in... I mean, I can maybe find the quote. Say, if a scientist working alone without witnesses reports that he did X and observes Y, there is no time for his colleagues to do anything other than assume that X was indeed what he did and Y was indeed what he observed. If cheating became widespread, the whole enterprise would crumble. Now, do you think that there's any problem with that as an institution? Because presumably, scientists as human beings, have many of the same cognitive biases and difficulties that...
1: Yes, they do. And of course, there's, uh, yes, I, I mean, I, I, nor would I claim that scientists are any more honest than anybody else when it comes to, you know, embezzling money or anything like that. I mean, there are, there are bad people and good people in, in all walks of life. But as you just quoted, the whole scientific enterprise depends upon the fact that we, we we have to believe that when people say they observed so and so, did such and such an experiment, measured such and such, wrote down the numbers that they wrote down, that we have to trust them to do that. Admittedly, there is the possibility of re- of repeating the experiment. And in physics especially, this is done, especially if it's a finding that is controversial and difficult to, to believe, then you can be sure that people will repeat it. And if it doesn't stand up, then that that's okay. But in biology, in my own field, there's just so many different things people could be working on that mostly there isn't time to go away and repeat what other people have done. So you have to trust them. Now, it is notoriously the case, unfortunately, that there are cheats in some. There are people who make up data. But if they get found out, then they are effectively banished from the whole enterprise. I mean, they, they, they cannot practice scientists ever again. It's, it is the most terrible crime that a scientist can commit to falsify data. It's not a, a crime to misinterpret data or, or, or get your discussion wrong or something, but to actually falsify data is a terrible crime. You can't lie about it. And I'm thinking that th- that's not really the case. And, and for example, in the, in the law, barristers are paid not not exactly to lie but to make the strongest case they possibly can for their client or for the crown, whereas in science at least we pay pay lip service to the idea that you don't make a strong case for for, for something, you actually try to let the facts speak for themselves. I mean, there's something about the scientific profession which demands honesty while doing science, as I said, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're you're honest well, well, in your private life. But the, the, the whole scientific enterprise would simply crumble away if we couldn't trust each other to report our findings honestly.
0: And you've got some quite scalding words in the book for, I wouldn't say philosophers, but a kind of subset of soft scientists and sort of continental theorists. I mean, do you have a kind of suspicion of what get called the soft sciences or human sciences sometimes? No,
1: I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. That would be... No, certainly not. I do have a suspicion for Kant, not the philosopher, but for obscurantism, for pretentiousness. And uh, I get that from Medower as well. I don't know whether you saw those quotes from Medower about what I suppose were postmodern philosophers. People who pretend to be more profound than they really are, who use obscure language as a device to impress. I'm not sure whether it was Medawar himself who coined the phrase physics envy, but I think what he meant by that was that physics is is genuinely difficult to understand. So if you suffer from physics envy and your subject is actually rather easy to understand, you language it up to try to make it harder to understand than it really is, because that makes you sound more profound. And if I get any suspicion that that's going on, I'm afraid I do rather see red. Uh, Maybe sometimes I go too far, but I am on my guard against obscurantism and pretension.
0: I mean, a lot of people now argue that a set of postmodernist ideas have kind of infected public discourse to such an extent that they you know, we're in this post-truth age. I mean, yes. do you see that as being right? I mean, I know Stephen Pinker, who's a friend of yours, you know, he sees us as being possibly in the grip of a sort of counter-enlightenment.
1: Yes, I sometimes said that if ever I thought, if a majority of the people who surround me no longer value truth, then I would no longer wish to go on living it's it's a, it's almost a matter almost a religion with me that truth objective truth actually is cardinal to my welfare well-being happiness i i can't stand being in being in a world where where people don't value truth and where they they distort truth and well i i agree with steve pinker on that
0: so you do think that there's a there's an actual sort of anti-truth
1: movement on the march i think there was i'm hoping it's rather Past now, but perhaps not. I mean, there's an entirely different set of post-truth, which is, of course, the Donald Trump post kind of post-truth. But that that's an opposite. I mean, that that's that's a different kind of post-truth. And thank God we're rid of that anyway. <laughs> there's lots available.
0: One of the other things that seems to be, and that, that I think confuses a lot of people and people struggle with, is this uh, an idea you're quite quite strong on that. We can't make exceptions, that exceptionalism for human beings as a special sort of animal, or for the mind as a sort of completely separate issue from Darwinian natural selection. You know, they say, look, instinct tells us that we have to
1: make these distinctions. Do you...? Yes, I... I I mean, Darwin was very keen to, as it were remove the idea of human exceptionalism. But I mean, I do think humans are exceptional. I, I, I wouldn't wish to deny that there's an enormous sense in which humans are, are unique. I mean, we, we have language which we have, which probably accounts for most of the other things which make us u- unique mentally. So, no, I, I don't necessarily have a, any strong objection to calling humans exceptional. But we are, nevertheless, I mean, we are evolved creatures, we are evolved animals, we are evolved African apes. And so uh, we, we can't deny that. You can't suddenly sort of say, well, we, we're, we're the only animals that have souls and spirits and life after death and things like that. We are we are animals, we are evolved creatures.
0: And the idea of the human mind, you know, was a, what's sometimes framed as a sort of hard problem of consciousness... You seem to suggest in this book that you see it as a kind of almost a side product of adaptation of, our, of evolution. Is that is that the right way of explaining oh, I don't
1: think I ever said that. I'm not. Sh- I mean, I, I think it is. I think it is rightly named the hard problem. It's a very very hard problem. I don't know whether the solution to it will come from biology or from philosophy or from Computer science, actually, is a possibility. I think it's a profoundly hard problem. A side issue? Well, I think T.H. Huxley, it might have been, who suggested that um, consciousness might have been a side issue, rather like the whistle on a steam train was a side effect of the steam. I don't think that. I mean, I I think that consciousness seems to be such a salient feature of the human brain that it must be doing something useful. And you can imagine, philosophers can imagine a robot creature which behaves in every respect like a human, but yet is not conscious. I find that rather hard to believe. I think I think that it, it's such an important aspect of us that it must be doing something necessary, something useful, something that natural selection got a grip on and, f- and fostered.
0: Because, right, I, I mean, there's a, a fascinating side mention of... of... The left, I've written it down because I wouldn't trust myself to remember it, the left recurrent laryngeal nerve of a giraffe.
1: <laughs> yes. OK. Um, that um, seemed
0: to me a lovely little vignette of, of how yes. evolution works that's counter right, to right. what a lot of us think of it. We,
1: we, we all have that nerve. I mean, it's a, it's a nerve that starts in the brain and goes down into the, into the chest and then goes back up to the larynx, where it does something to do with the voice. Um, and in the giraffe, of course, that's a very long detour indeed. And I, I I mean, I'm very fond of it because I assisted in a dissection of it for television, actually. And we actually tra- traced it. I didn't. I mean, I just watched this woman, excellent anatomist, tracing it down. And it whizzes straight past the larynx and goes on and on for yards more in, into the chest and then back up again. And you sort of feel, well, any designer worth his salt would have said, aha, oh, wait a minute, we're going within one inch of the larynx here. <laughs> Why go on down? Because it, it's an artifact of history. It's happened because in our fishy ancestors, the most direct route of that nerve to, to its end organ, which wasn't the larynx in those days, but whatever it was, something in the gills, was south of the blood vessel that it, that it now loops around, that it, that it then looped around. It was one of the gill arches in the in fish. And then as evolution proceeded and as the neck got gradually longer, fish don't have a neck, as the tetrapod neck, as the mammalian neck got longer and longer, very, very much longer in the giraffe, each marginal increment in the length of this detour of the nerve looping round this artery was trivial compared to the immense cost in embryology of jumping over that blood vessel and going straight to the the larynx. So this long detour down into the chest, round the blood vessel and back up again, makes sense if you think of it in terms of history, evolutionary history, rather than in terms of design.
0: In terms of design, as well, one of your more, I think it's fair to say, controversial ideas has been this one of the extended phenotype and the idea that you might be able to explain aspects of what, to us, are culture in Darwinian terms, do you, I mean, how much do you feel Darwin and natural selection can tell us about things like, I mean, a fascinating discussion with Stephen Pinker in here about this, things like our enjoyment of music or poetry or art.
1: Yes, I'm rather proud of the idea of the extended phenotype, but I wouldn't wish to apply it, I think, to music and art. I apply it to things like beaver dams and caddis houses and birds' nests. Music and art, well... Stephen Pinker is my kind of go-to person for the evolutionary explanation of things like music and art. I think he thinks of them as a kind of byproduct probably. In the case of music for example, why do we like music so much? I think I mean his sort of Pinker sort of idea is that in order to decode language and sounds generally, we have to do a frequency analysis. Fourier analysis, and pure musical notes or chords or or beautiful or, or lovely musical sounds or rhythms are uh, what he calls cheesecake are are a um an 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 extreme form of the the kind of stimulus which we have to analyze mathematically in order to decode things like speech and other complicated sounds. I hope I explain this better in the book than I do here.
0: (laughs) I think you're explaining it well enough here.
1: No, well, so cheesecake for him is the kind of ultimate, pure pleasure for the taste buds. And given that our brain is set up to analyse sound into its component sine waves and then put them together, musical notes... Are the cheesecake of the of the auditory system? Look up Pinker himself. I can't explain it well enough. So just a,
0: a happy word, but can I ask? Do you think, and again, this is maybe an approach to a similar question, that there are meaningful questions to which science can't
1: provide an answer? I suspect so, but well, certainly things like moral questions. I'm, I, I think. Um, you, you you mentioned that you've been talking to Sam Harris. He, he thinks science can provide an answer to moral questions, and I, I'm doubtful of that, although I think he goes a long way to make it convincing. So I don't think that science is the right area, it's certainly not the first area you should go into when trying to solve questions like what is right and what is wrong, nor for aesthetic judgments, so it's what is beautiful music. Ultimately, there must be a scientific explanation, but that's not the, the, the right way to go to get it proximal, immediate answer to the question of why why certain aesthetics um, experiences are as wonderful as they are.
0: You make a distinction in the book between how and why questions that I thought was interesting.
1: Yes, well, why questions work in a Darwinian sense. When you say, you know, why do birds have wings? It's good for flying. Why do we have eyes? Good for seeing and so on. And that, of course, makes perfect sense from a Darwinian point of view. We have eyes that make us survive better. birds have wings that make them survive better. But why questions the kind of peremptory demand that everything must have a why. Why do we why are there mountains in the sense of purpose? What's the, I mean, the answer to why are there mountains is, is geology of course. But for some people, a why question means what is the purpose of mountains? What is the purpose of the universe? What is the purpose of everything? And I don't think that's a legitimate question. The mere fact that you can ask a, a why question doesn't mean that it's a legitimate question that deserves an answer. In biology, there's a special Darwinian sense in which why questions really do deserve an answer. But that's a very special case, and, and it, it, the answer comes through Darwinian natural selection. But most things in the universe simply don't deserve to be treated to a why question. There's no, there's no sensible answer to the question, why did the universe come into existence? Why are there mountains? Why is there light? Why is that? I mean, the, the, these are all reducible, or truly reducible, to how questions. What is, it, what is it? How did it come about that there are mountains? And the answer to that is, is geology.
0: A why question I could ask. You've spent a good part of the last couple of decades, a lot of your energy, and there's two sections of this book on it, arguing against religion. And I'm interested in why, from your point of view, you felt so urged to do that. Because as a sort of reader, it seems it's a less complex argument in a way. You're having to say some quite simple, some would even say obvious things, and say them over and over again. And that there's much, much more richness intellectually in the complexity of the
1: Scientific work
0: did you feel it was yes, sort of... I would agree
1: with that i suppose since I'm so fascinated by scientific explanations, I do regard religious explanations as competing with i mean as a kind of scientific explanation but a wrong one so whereas say well, our late friend Christopher Hitchens came to his opposition to religion through. I suppose politics really, sort of seeing God as a kind of celestial Mao Zedong (laughs) or dictator. I came at it from science and so I think that the God hypothesis, as I called it in the God delusion, is a a scientific hypothesis in the the sense that a universe that had a God in it, a universe that was created by a God, would be a very, very different kind of universe from one in which things just happened according to the laws of physics and then according to the laws of biology. That Those are deeply, deeply different rival explanations for the complexity and beauty of the universe and uh, the living world. And so I, I think I did see religion as a competing hypothesis to the scientific hypotheses and a wrong one.
0: And so did you feel it was a sort of moral or intellectual duty to, to try and see it off.
1: Yes, I suppose that's right. Yes.
0: From a sort of lay point of view, I was going to say, you know, one of your beefs with religion, rightly, I think, is that it's a, you know, it's very often an argument from authority. Yes. And, I mean, of course, the scientific method absolutely works against that. But on a kind of pragmatic ground level, sociological way. A a lot of us, who aren't actually scientists, sort of have to accept scientific authority. I mean, I I know in my bones that the Earth travels around the Sun, but I haven't done the experiment, I haven't done the maths, I haven't made the observations. I sort of believe it, because I know that a lot of important and intelligent people have worked it out for me.
1: It's a very difficult problem, that, because within science too, I mean, I, I as a biologist can't understand physics and so I I have to take that on trust. And it's not entirely authority however, it's not really saying professor so-and-so says such and such and therefore it must be true. You know that physicists like any other scientists are subject to peer review, they're subject to having their experiments repeated in the case of physics more than biology as I said before, and so Although I can't understand it myself, like you, I have to take it on, on not authority, but um, I have to believe that the methods of science, which are things like the critical methods, like like peer, peer review, have been gone through, and therefore you can trust it because it has been subject to the same kind of critical examination as I know goes on in my own field of biology. So I don't think it's quite right to call it authority, it's almost authority, but it's something a little bit better than authority. It isn't, oh, well, Professor so-and-so says such-and-such and therefore it must be right. It's, it's rather more Professor so-and-so says such-and-such and his paper was peer-reviewed and it got published in Nature and it was very strenuously examined by referees and so the chances are it's okay, and if it isn't okay somebody will repeat the experiment in a few years, months' time and, see, and, and check it out.
0: So it's a sort of trust in the institutions, if you like, certainly...
1: And, the, and it's methods, yes, because the methods have been developed, really they've been honed to a high degree. Uh, for example, science has methods in place for removing our own biases especially you see this in medicine nowadays with a double-blind control trial where a new drug or something that is being tested. Because with the best will in the world, a scientist may be biased in favour of his own hypothesis. A double-blind control trial means that neither the patient nor the nurses administering the dose nor the scientists who propose the hypothesis, or the doctor evaluating it, none of them know which patient received the control and which patient received the experimental drug or whatever it is. So there's no possibility of bias coming in there. Well, science hasn't always done that, but for some decades scientists have very, very rigorously applied that kind of method, specifically in order to purge science of their own bias you, and even in one in a branch of science which is not one's own, we know that that kind of purging is going on, that kind of critical self-criticism is going on, and that gives a high degree of justification for believing things that you don't actually understand yourself.
0: In your championing of, of science, particularly against obscurantism and against religion, you can be quite sharp and something that a theme that emerges in your conversations with Neil deGrasse Tyson for instance and I think your later interlocutor is Peter Weiss I think he's called is this question about how far one goes to bring in you know one's opponents and how far ridicule is the tool I mean you know there's the old saying about catching more flies with honey than vinegar
1: yes it's a difficult one that and, and I readily can see that I might have got that wrong I think there is a place for ridicule but it's possible to overdo it and catching with honey is well I, I, you may have seen this in the argument I had with Lawrence Krauss which is
0: so Lawrence yeah. Krauss I missed I, I got his name yes really,
1: that's right um he um attacked me for too much vinegar and um we had a conversation about it afterwards which which is recounted in the book Yes, I, th- I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for that. I have myself been won over by vinegar. I think I may have mentioned that, maybe perhaps I didn't mention it. That, that um, as a student, I was very much seduced by Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, the French mystic, Roman Catholic priest, who, who um, wrote a book called The Phenomenon of Man. And as a student, I was very seduced by this, thought it was wonderful. And it's full of, it's it's prose poetry. Peter Meadower described it as that tipsy, euphoristic prose poetry, which is one of the more tiresome manifestations of the French spirit. That's vintage way. And I was seduced by that. And then I read Meadower's own review of that book, The Phenomenon of Man. And he didn't actually say, you've been an idiot, but I took, you know, I have been an idiot. And I didn't mind admitting to myself that I had been an idiot in being fooled by that book. On the other hand, I know that plenty of people are turned off, and so by far the best way to convert somebody is not to ridicule them, but to seduce them, as as Lawrence Krauss said, as you said, honey rather than vinegar. And I think maybe both approaches are needed, and I perhaps in some places overdone the vinegar approach. I tend to do that in print when I'm just writing for lots, lots of people. If I'm talking to somebody face to face, I would never, I don't think, I, don't, I would never ridicule anybody to their face.
0: That that idea of coming around and changing your mind, it's always very attractive where people do that. And I, I love that in the book you talk about how, I think, between editions of The Selfish Gene, you came around to the idea that I think it's called the handicap
1: principle. Handicap, yes, indeed, yes.
0: That you, you shifted your view on the mating displays of was it peacocks' mating yes. displays and so and yes. sort of, That's uh, right. Are there other instances you could think of in mean, in the course of your career where you've had a a sea change and you've gone, no, actually, I got that wrong. My view has completely shifted in a way I hadn't anticipated.
1: Well, certainly the handicap principle is the main one in my professional career. If I look back at my undergraduate essays. I think almost all of them are wrong. <laughs> I I wish I mean my, my my many of my tutors could have pointed it out, and I don't think they did. They they were much too complimentary. Yes, I I can't think of anything any other major mistake that I could put my finger on, apart from the handicap principle, which is a, which is a big one and a very interesting one actually.
0: One of the pleasures of the book is that there are a couple of essays in here where you're writing about fiction. Yes. Um. Was, and you talk in, and I think you write an introduction to one of Fred Hoyle's novels, and you say, you talk with enthusiasm about science fiction that works and science fiction that doesn't. Did, yes. Was science fiction something that excited you growing up?
1: Yes, I think it was. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a great aficionado of it. I, I, I haven't, I, I don't subscribe to those science fiction magazines and things. I've just read some novels. I think I've learned a lot of science, actually, from science fiction. And you mentioned Fred Hoyle. The the Black Cloud. I've read most of his science fiction novels I think me, the later ones are pot boilers, but the first one, The Black Cloud is superb, and The Andromeda, you learn a lot of science from that. Uh, in the case of The Black Cloud, I mean, I learned of, uh, to understand about information theory, for example, from The Black Cloud. Uh, I learned the idea that scientific discoveries are often made independently, in two entirely different ways, often almost simultaneously. That comes right at the beginning of The Black Cloud. It's very, very nicely done, on the one hand, by an observation through a telescope, and on the other hand, by mathematics, by theoretical uh, analysis. And they come to the same conclusion. And there's a wonderful goose pimpling moment when the mathematician in Cambridge, the hero of the novel, Sends a telegram to the observers in in America, and the telegram says, "Please inform whether strange object exists at such and such coordinates, having deduced from mathematics, from from other observations actually, but but using mathematical analysis." And then, the book says, "The words of the telegram seem to swell to a gigantic size," and I thought that's goose pimpling. That's absolutely wonderful. So that, I, I, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Another another scientific lesson that I learned from the black cloud was the importance of prediction. Because when the scientists are trying to, uh, are arguing among themselves about the true nature of the black cloud, and the hero Christopher Kingsley, and the comic character, the Russian ca- character, co- comic character, are the only ones who think that it, the black cloud is a conscious being, and the skeptics and the believers are arguing it out and they make predictions and it's predictions that matter they 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 make predictions and they and they go off and test the predictions and eventually the the be- believers in the consciousness of the black cloud win out against the skeptics because their predictions come out right that's another lesson that you really learn so i think that science fiction is can be very good for teaching some of the principles of science, and I learned a lot from them. Now,
0: uh, I probably wouldn't be doing my duty by the news if I didn't at least ask you about this business. Just in the last couple of days, one of your social media posts caused you to have a quite long-ago award withdrawn from the secular society. Can I ask you what your reaction to that was? I mean... Is it something you would call I'd, by? For,
1: I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten they'd even given me an award. I looked up my CV with a view to doing my duty and uh, deleting it from my CV, only to discover that I, I hadn't even recorded it in the first place. There was nothing to delete. It actually didn't make much impression on me. I think it's too trivial a matter to be worth talking about. Fair enough.
0: Well, I'd like to end by asking you about something. That, it was a sort of haunting piece in the book where you talk about and I think it's with a physicist saying that, which I hadn't realised, this period of life on Earth is one in which we can actually do you know, astronomy and that billions of years from now we won't be able to. Can you explain what?
1: Yes. Um, this, is, this, this is my afterword to... Well, it's, it's, it's Lawrence Krauss's book. I forget what it's called. Um, something from Nothing, is it? is it? Something from Nothing, that's right. Yeah, something like that. And he points out that at present, this is an ideal time to be a cosmologist because at present we can see lots of galaxies and the Hubble Space Telescope shows millions of galaxies actually and they're all receding. But there will come a time in a few trillion years' time when they've all receded so far that astronomers of the future in God knows how many trillion years' time will not be able to see any galaxies other than our own. They'll be back where astronomers were in the early part of the 20th century when they thought that this galaxy was the only one. And so this is a kind of sweet spot, admittedly rather a long drawn out sweet spot, uh, where we have plenty of galaxies to look at because it won't last forever. Of course, humanity won't last <laughs> long enough to, to notice the difference, but it is an interesting point, I think, that Lawrence Krauss makes.
0: Well, what a time to be alive. Richard Dawkins, thank you very much indeed. Mark the launch of the new Spectator app, we're offering our podcast listeners the chance to try a three-month digital subscription absolutely free. To subscribe in our flash sale, go to spectatorco.uk forward slash app offer today. Hurry though, this offer ends Sunday.